0: The Institute, Institute,
1: Institute for Justice,
0: the National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello and welcome to Short Circuit, your weekly podcast on the federal courts of appeal. I'm your host, John Ross, joined today by special guest Paul, the flavor enhancer, Sherman, as well as your regular panelists, Evan Burnick and Clark Neely of IJ's Center for Judicial Engagement. This week on the show, accountants sue the IRS, credit card surcharges take two, a recanting witness and forced sterilization. Paul, let's do this thing.
1: All right. Well, the case is Dana's Railroad Supply versus Attorney General of Florida. and It's a really fascinating First Amendment case that gets to the heart of a question about what's called a content-based restriction versus a content-neutral restriction. Uh, the law in Florida prohibited companies from imposing credit card surcharges on their customers. So if someone paid with a credit card, you couldn't impose a surcharge. But at the same time, the law allowed you to offer a cash discount. So the result of this was that you could charge people a higher price for credit cards, a lower price for cash or checks or cash equivalents. And the way the law was enforced was it only applied to people who called that difference a surcharge rather than a discount. And the question in the case is, is this a restriction on speech, in which case the First Amendment applies, or is this a restriction on conduct, in which case it's judged under the rational basis standard?
0: So we actually talked about a similar case a few weeks ago in the Second Circuit, Evan. You want to fill us in on that?
2: Yeah, the Second Circuit dealt with a functionally identical law that prohibited surcharges but permitted discounts, Um, did not prohibit dual pricing, but prohibited how you could communicate um, the function of the price to customers in the course of your lawful business. And where did the court land on? Uh, the Second Circuit came to the conclusion that this was a not a speech case. It was a business regulation and uh, upheld the law. Uh, the court in this case came to a very different conclusion. And that conclusion was?
1: Yeah. So the court in this case comes to the exact opposite conclusion, and it's the conclusion that's much more consistent with the Supreme Court's First Amendment precedent. And maybe the best explanation of it is the court says this is like a law that says that you're prohibited from serving uh, beverages at a restaurant that are half empty, but you're allowed to serve beverages that are half full. And the only way that they enforce the law is by whether you call it half full or half empty. In that case, the thing that is triggering the regulation is speech, and when a regulation is triggered by speech, it has to be analyzed as a restriction on speech. So the court applied intermediate scrutiny in this case. Um, It held that it would have failed even under intermediate scrutiny, so it didn't have to decide whether it should instead have been judged under strict scrutiny. Uh, It's a really excellent example of a court figuring out what's actually going on with this kind of regulation. Because it's clear why this regulation was passed. This wasn't passed to protect consumers from being surprised by surcharges as opposed to discounts. This was passed because the credit card lobby doesn't want this difference in price to be referred to as a surcharge because it makes people
0: less likely to use credit cards. And the 11th Circuit used some pretty vivid imagery, Evan.
2: Yeah. Uh, as besides what Paul has already said, um, the court said that calling this is a calling this a no surcharge law is something of a misnomer. Uh, this because the statute targets expression alone. It's more or less a surcharges are fine. Just don't call them that law. Um, it's not a business regulation properly speaking. It is a restriction upon the way that you can communicate uh, the price choices that you make to consumers. It is a speech restriction. And And the court in this case, in a very uh, good example of judicial engagement, came to the conclusion that that was impermissible. Now, was this a unanimous decision? It wasn't a unanimous decision. There was a dissent, and the dissent accepted the premise that if the statute had been as the majority characterized it, it would have been unconstitutional, but adopted a saving construction, went out of its way to, in effect, rewrite the statute in order to um, come to the conclusion that it was constitutional. But it was a dissent. The majority carried the day, and now there is a split on a very important First Amendment issue.
0: There's a split, and there's one more case coming out of the Fifth Circuit.
1: That's correct. Uh, the Fifth Circuit is currently considering this. There's also an appeal going up in the Ninth Circuit considering this. Uh, we did an amicus brief in uh, support of the plaintiffs in the Fifth Circuit case arguing under the Supreme Court's decision in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project that these kinds of laws that are triggered by speech have to be analyzed as restrictions on speech. So we'll see what happens with the Fifth Circuit. But now that there's a circuit split, it seems like sooner or later, this is a question that the Supreme Court is going to have to look at okay let's move on to the next
2: case evan yeah this is a really ugly case it involves a a chinese man who sought asylum in the united states because of his opposition to china's coercive population control policy Um, He and his wife got pregnant uh, back in 1988. They had their first child, and she was uh, required to have an intrauterine device implanted. Uh, Later, that intrauterine device fell off, uh, and she got pregnant again, at which point government officials came to their home um, and tried to forcibly uh, implant uh, Norplant in her arms so that she could not become pregnant. Um, Her her husband fought them. Uh, His foot was broken. Uh, He fled the country and he sought asylum in the United States saying that if I return to China, I will be persecuted because of of what happened to me and what happened to my family.
0: And that's a reasonable cause of action. But Paul, the immigration judge wasn't buying it.
2: Yeah, so the immigration judge really latched
1: onto what he considered to be some major inconsistencies in the the asylum seekers' testimony uh, and really kind of lost the... uh, the forest for the trees in this case. So we have a a 51-year-old farmer who has come to the United States. He's seeking asylum. He's talking to the immigration judge through an interpreter, and there's some confusion about the procedure that his wife was subjected to. Uh, So the interpreter at first calls it a vasectomy, which confuses the immigration judge. And she explains that she meant to say tubal ligation, And there's just sort of a confusion of terms. It's pretty clear throughout the entire process that he's talking about a subcutaneous and under-the-skin implant, but he doesn't really know what to call it. And so the immigration judge latches onto this and decides, well, I don't think your testimony is credible, and so we can kick you out of the
0: country and throw you back to China. How did the Seventh Circuit rule Evan
2: Well the Seventh Circuit ruled in favor of the asylum seeker it rightly recognized that the uh, immigration judge had gotten caught up on an insignificant detail it focused on the reality of this guy's situation he's going to be sent out of out of the country despite having a very credible claim of persecution and uh, it ruled in his favor um, and this case really discloses the importance um, of judicial engagement in the context of a situation where yes um, immigration judges see a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are trying to enter into this country. Nonetheless, you need judicial engagement to focus on the facts and make sure that credible claims of possible persecution are recognized and people's rights are protected. Clark, let's move on to the next case. Next case comes out of the
3: Seventh Circuit. This is a truly surreal case. And the question essentially is, whether the state's knowing introduction of perjured testimony and deliberate failure to correct that perjured testimony is sufficiently prejudicial that the defendant who was convicted of murder in that trial is entitled to habeas relief and ultimately a new trial. For those of us who don't do that, that kind of work, the idea that a prosecutor could knowingly introduce perjured testimony, deliberately fail to correct it, uh, and then argue later that, that that was not prejudicial and there's nothing for the court to do on appeal. I find rather shocking, but that was the argument that was made.
0: Evan, there was no physical evidence in this case. The whole, the whole of the state's case rested on eyewitness testimony.
2: Yes, and that eyewitness lied. The prosecutor knew that that eyewitness lied and allowed it to go uncorrected.
3: To be clear, what she lied about was whether she had recanted her earlier identification of the suspect. So that goes directly to the witness's credibility. And as the court points out, this is not a particularly strong case. It really comes down to the credibility of the purported eyewitnesses. And the prosecutor, as we mentioned a moment ago, knowingly introduced perjured testimony and failed to correct it.
0: Well, not just this court, but the state appellate court also noted that the evidence was, quote, not overwhelming. And yet here we are in the Seventh Circuit still appealing.
3: Yeah. I mean, part of this is because the habeas proceedings have become so labyrinthine. I mean, reading this decision you have to cut through this whole swath of procedural issues and frankly many arguments that look pretty strong besides the the argument about the perjured testimony uh, the Seventh Circuit fines were were defaulted were waived because uh, they weren't presented in the correct way uh, through the habeas proceeding so really this case is about two things first should there be any consequences when the state knowingly introduces perjured testimony and fails to correct it? But second, uh, what does it take for a defendant to successfully navigate the labyrinthine procedures of modern habeas law? And wow, the answer is a lot. It It is no joke trying to preserve your arguments through all of the, the twists and turns.
2: Yeah, and the other issue is uh, what does it take to actually secure habeas relief in the first place? Um, there's a federal statute It's called EDPA. Uh, that makes it very difficult for people to secure relief if they've been pro- if they have been um, convicted under circumstances, which we have reason to believe were deficient in some way. Um, this is a very extreme case. You have the only eyewitness um, lying on the stand on the prosecutor, uh, prosecutor tolerating it and uh, relief is afforded. But there are lots of cases in which this does not happen.
3: I think we just give the Seventh Circuit the last word on this case. Uh, this is from the opinion, quote, a government lawyer's use of perjured testimony is a threat to the concept of ordered liberty, end quote. That's certainly true, and we're fortunate, all of us, that there was an engaged court to, t- to, to recognize that fact and ensure that whether this individual is guilty or innocent, that needs to be determined through a fair process that does not include perjured testimony.
0: Okay, for the last case, we move to the D.C. Circuit. Paul.
1: So the case is American Institute of Certified Public Accountants versus IRS, and it's an interesting follow-up to a case that the Institute for Justice litigated called Loving versus IRS. A few years ago, the IRS decided it would be a good idea if it created a registration process, a certification process, for unregistered tax return preparers. So these are people who assist folks in filling out their tax returns. The problem, as we pointed out in our lawsuit and as we convinced the DC Circuit, was that the IRS had absolutely no authority to require people to become registered if they wanted to assist people in filling out their taxes. So we won that case. Uh, the district court in that case had said, well, it, if the uh, IRS wanted to do a voluntary program, that would be fine. And that wasn't essential to his case. It's what we call dicta. Uh, Well, the IRS seized on that and it created a voluntary system of certification. This uh, invoked the ire of CPAs who are allowed to prepare tax returns. And so they filed a lawsuit challenging the legality of that voluntary system of registration.
3: Yeah, one thing that's important to clarify is that the original program that the IRS implemented was, in effect, a licensing program. There's a category of tax return preparers called unenrolled agents. These are people who are not CPAs or lawyers. They're not recognized in any way by the IRS. And what the IRS tried to do was to require that these people become registered with the IRS by taking some classes and passing a test. It was, in effect, a licensing scheme. Uh, that is the program that was struck down. By the D.C. Circuit in Loving, and the way the IRS was was the way the IRS responded was by saying, "Okay, well, we'll just have a voluntary certification program, so you don't have to uh, go through all those hoops. But if you choose to, then you'll be identified as a certified tax preparer, and we'll put your name in a little book that we produce." The issue was that CPAs, who you know have that professional credential, felt that this would enhance the ability of these unenrolled tax preparers to compete with them because they'd essentially get some kind of government imprimatur. And that was the, that, that's the legal issue in the case. But of course, because this is a federal court challenge against the government, you first have a standing argument because, as we've mentioned before, the Department of Justice basically seems to believe that no citizen belongs in federal court challenging anything the federal government does under any circumstances. And the way they make that point is by asserting a standing argument defense to virtually every federal lawsuit that gets filed. And that's precisely what they did in this case.
0: So more competition sounds like a good thing, Paul. Competition in the
1: marketplace is definitely a good thing. But what we have here is the government inserting itself in the marketplace by creating this credential. And whether that's good policy or bad policy, the first question we have to answer is, does the government even have the authority to create that policy? And If the government doesn't have the authority to create that policy, people who are harmed by that decision should be able to get into court and challenge that policy.
3: Yeah, and and there's a very real argument here on the merits because, first of all, there's arguably an absence of statutory authority to create this certification program, just as the court found there was an absence of statutory authority to create the licensing scheme that we got struck down in Loving. And second, there are procedures that administrative agencies are supposed to go through before they implement new policies. It's called notice and comment, where they receive input from people who may be affected by the new regulation and then take that into account when they come up with the new policy or the new the new regulation. And unfortunately, as people who know about administrative law are aware, what's been happening lately is that agencies have come up with all kinds of different ways to effectively implement policy in informal ways that mandate compliance on the part of people in the industry or whomever else is is covered by the regulation, but without actually engaging in formal rulemaking that can then be reviewed in court. And in fact, increasingly, it appears that that's exactly what the agencies are attempting to do, is implement policy while shielding that policy from judicial review. That is reprehensible, and the D.C. Circuit's uh, slapping it down in this case is all to the
1: good. Yeah, and when you combine that pattern of agency practice with the federal court's all too frequent approach to standing, you end up with this double whammy where you have agencies that are not seriously attempting to police their own behavior. And then you have courts that are not allowing people to get into court and and challenge that behavior. And you end up with just a massive expansion of government that has no statutory authority. Luckily, the DC circuit sent this case back down and these plaintiffs are going to get their day in court.
3: Yeah. Although it goes back in the posture that the D.C. Circuit reversed the district court's conclusion that there was no standing here, which the, the standing argument is so weak in the case, this case, it sort of suggests a riff on the uh, timeless question of when a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? And the question is, is there a standing argument so weak that you can't find some judge who will buy it? Uh, but as Paul said, fortunately, there's a, an engaged appellate court on on. Uh, on duty in this case, and goes back to the the district court for resolution on the merits, which is how this case should be resolved.
0: Okay, that wraps things up. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow Paul on Twitter. His handle is at Paul M. Sherman. And so until next time, this is John Ross from the Institute for Justice enticing you to get engaged.